Good morning. It's good to see you again this morning as we return to, uh, to Matthew's Gospel. By the time we reach Matthew 14, the earthly ministry of Jesus is in full swing. Three of the five great discourses of this Gospel, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on Mission, and the parables of the Kingdom have been delivered. Jesus has called his disciples, healed the leper, the paralytic, and the man with the withered hand, among many others. He'd raised from death the daughter of the rich man, calmed the storm, expelled the garrison demoniacs. It had not been one adoring crowd after another, that's true. There had been opposition from the Pharisees and scribes, and even from those who lived in Jesus' own, own hometown, and yet... He continued to teach, continued to do the work that he was given to do. But a little way into Matthew 14, we read this. And when he heard, Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. What was it that had such an impact on Jesus? What was it that signalled a turning point that he could not ignore? Well, the answer to those questions lies in the report to Jesus of one of the most gruesome and pathetic incidents recorded for us in the Gospels. Gruesome, very literally, blood and gore, and pathetic. A tale of weakness and manipulation, a confrontation between an evil king whose insecurities and foolishness was on display for all to see, and a prophet of the Lord whose trust was in the real king and his kingdom. The incident is recorded for us not just to spice up the narrative of the gospel, not just to shock you or send a shiver up your spine, it's recorded because it teaches us something we cannot afford to ignore either. But before we get there, let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that this morning as we look into your word and seek to understand it and seek to live in the light of it, that by your Holy Spirit you might impress your word upon our hearts and minds and direct us to respond to it in a way that honours your Son, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, the account of John the Baptist's death points both backwards and forwards backward to the very dark period in the, the history of God's people during the ministry of the prophet Elijah, forward to the great climatic events of this gospel, the death of the one that John had been preparing for and preparing God's people for all through his ministry. Echoes from both sides from the past and from the future are found in this story and they help us to see why we need to hear it. As I said, Matthew does not simply add a bit of blood and gore to his gospel in order to grab our attention. This is not a rhetorician's party trick. It is a linchpin moment. The climax of a long history of confrontation and the anticipation of something far, far greater. The last of the Old Testament prophets dispatched and our attention drawn to the era of the sun. So let's return to Matthew's Gospel, to chapter 14, 
starting from verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard what was being said of Jesus. And he said to his boys, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why the powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John kept saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though Herod wanted to kill him, he feared the crowd because they had him as a prophet. When Herod's birthday gathering came, the daughter of Herodias danced in the midst of them and she pleased Herod. On account of this, Herod promised on oath to give her whatever she asked. And persuaded by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And though the king was grieved, because of his oaths and guests, he commanded it be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the young girl, and she brought it to her mother. John's disciples took the corpse and buried it and went and told Jesus. And when he heard, Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. Well, there would have been understandable grief at the death of John. That would have been heightened, no doubt, by the gruesome manner of his death. But that is not why Jesus sought to withdraw to a quiet place. It wasn't just that he needed some space to grieve. Though we shouldn't discount the reality of his grief. He knew, he knows what real grief is like, what it's all about. Even grief that is sharp and shocking and wrapped up in the wickedness of what one human being can do to another. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we do need to remember that. There are, there may be times where this is the only answer we have to what's happening around us. He has been there before us. He walks through it with us. He will bring it to an end when he wipes every tear from our eyes. But this particular tragedy was highly significant. The one Jesus himself had identified as greater than any other born of women, the Elijah who is to come, had been butchered by an immoral pretender to the throne of Israel, a man whose self-pretension far outweighed the realities of his position and of his power. There's one thing to talk about, the violence done to the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus had done back in Matthew 11. It was another thing to see it played out in such brutal colours right up close. And because it catches up the past and the future in a way we'll see in a moment, it teaches us two things about the clash between the kingdom of heaven and the world into which it comes. The conflict is deeply personal for those who think they are powerful. And the conflict has a definite purpose for the one who has the real power. The conflict is deeply personal for those who think they are powerful, the conflict has a definite purpose for the one with real power. So first, the, the conflict is deeply personal. Perhaps you notice the resonances throughout the account with the records of the ministry of Elijah during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel in the 7th century BC. 
The first and most obvious comes from the fact that Jesus identified John the Baptist as the Elijah who is to come. Like Elijah, John proclaimed the rule of God, God's right to the faithfulness and obedience of his people, and indeed of all people. God's rule demanded even the faithfulness and obedience of those with power, like the king. Elijah, you see, was a thorn in Ahab's side. He challenged Ahab repeatedly and his right to do whatever he wanted. He was God's agent of judgment. Remember, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You don't get the last word, Ahab. God does. Elijah took on the idols and false gods Ahab and his poisonous wife worshipped. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And by the end of the day, the prophets of Baal were both disgraced and dead, and Ahab was left in fear. You might remember that it was at the beginning of that great confrontation that Ahab had addressed the prophet as, you troubler of Israel, the one who challenged the Israel Ahab was trying to build the one who challenged Ahab and his claim to power. But there is another resonance, not just this confrontation of God's prophet, the bearer of God's word, with the man with pretended power on his pretended throne. Rulers don't like to be ruled, and so when God's word is brought into their world, it invariably unsettles them, confronts them, threatens them. The confrontation was between the prophet and the king but even more so between the prophet and the king's wife. For when push came to shove, like most bullies, Ahab was deplorably weak. It was Jezebel who brought the Baals to Israel from Sidon. It was Jezebel who arranged for the death of Naboth so that Ahab could claim his vineyard and have his vegetable patch. Ahab had lain whimpering and refusing to eat like a petulant child. And Jezebel had said, leave it to me. And so Jezebel was just as confronted by the prophet and the word he brought to Israel. And you might remember she tried to kill all the prophets of the Lord, including Elijah. Ahab might have quivered before the prophet. Jezebel never would. It was a pattern repeated again and again in the history of Israel and Judah. The powerful, who are nowhere near as powerful as they pretend to be, unsettled by the word brought by the prophet of God, caving in and lashing out at the same time in one pathetic action. And that's what we see here in Matthew 14. Herod the Tetrarch. This isn't Herod the Great. In fact, uh, there's actually not much at all that's great about this particular Herod. He's not even a king. A friend of mine explains the word Tetrarch as a ruler of a little bit. You see, when this man's father had died, the Romans agreed to split his kingdom into pieces and Herod Antipas received only a fraction of the kingdom over which his father had ruled. Not so great, not so powerful, and alarmed when he heard the reports of what Jesus was doing and saying in the backwaters of Galilee. For you see, after all, he had heard those words before. He'd heard the message Jesus was proclaiming somewhere else, not very long ago, actually. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you can almost imagine the slight shake in his voice 
as he responds to what he's heard Jesus was saying and doing. This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why the powers are at work in him. And at that moment, Matthew gives us a flashback to show why Herod was so concerned. You have to understand that John was saying something else besides repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He challenged Herod and his determination to do whatever he pleased directly. And he kept challenging him. He refused to back off. Now, the sordid, tangled relationships of Herod and his family are confusing. And that's not helped by the fact that a number of them have the same name. Herod Antipas, as I've said, was one of the sons of Herod the Great. He'd married Phasaelus, the daughter of the king of Nabatia. And then he fell in love with another woman. He was already married. And so was she, and worse still, to his own brother. Herod sent uh, Phasaelus away and took Herodias, his own sister-in-law, who, in another tragic twist, was also his niece, the daughter of another brother, back to his house as his wife. As you can imagine, Phasaelus's wife, uh, father, sorry, Phasaelus's father wasn't too happy about this. Um, he sent troops to deal with this wayward husband, wayward son-in-law. And his troops won. It was only the intervention of the Romans that saved him. It was a real mess. It was highly politically charged. It was relationally confusing. And in the midst of all of that, John kept saying... It is not lawful for you to have her. I guess he could have just kept quiet. Why rock the boat? You know it'll be dangerous. You know all the cards are stacked in his favour. He gets what he wants, that's, that's obvious. You won't be able to change his mind. Okay, it might be wrong. Okay, I might not agree with it. Okay, the Bible's pretty clear on this issue, but now is not the time to speak. Now, not in this environment, not, not at this moment. For the sake of having a voice later on, you need to say nothing now. It's a kind of reasoning we're quite familiar with, isn't it? He could have just kept quiet, not allow himself to be identified as a hardline religious fanatic. That would be safer. It might even be more strategic in terms of the mission. But he didn't because the kingdom of heaven had drawn near. And God's rule demands everyone's attention, even Herod's. The word of the Lord confronting those with power in this world, and they hate it. They are in charge, not these preachers, not these prophets. And so Herod had John seized and shackled. And if it had not been for the public perception that John was a prophet he would have had him dispatched very quickly. But he just kept him there, in prison. One of the other Gospels tells us how Herod remained fascinated with John, sneaking down to the cells to hear what he had to say, getting angry when that same refrain was heard again. John kept saying it, you see. It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod got angry, but not angry enough to finish the job. And that's when you need to remember that John's words challenged Herodias as much as they challenged Herod. And Herodias, like Jezebel in the Old Testament, was a real piece of work. 
She couldn't see why Herod had refused to bring an end to it. And you could imagine the hatred and the anger building as days went by and John was still breathing in the cells below. He challenged her right to be there, to stand beside the man she loved. And love is love, isn't it? So she looked for an opportunity to take the matters into her own hand. That opportunity came when Herod invited his mates over for a birthday bash. Fair bit of wine, some extravagant food, some entertainment that suited the man and the moment. We're not told how Herodias' daughter got the gig and was able to dance, but it doesn't take much to guess, does it? Herodias pushed her young daughter into it. It might not have been anything particularly erotic, And the word used to describe this daughter at the end of the account makes clear she was quite young, perhaps as young as 12. But however she danced, there is something quite dark, isn't there, about a young girl dancing in the midst of a group of drunken older men. Herod, for one, was pleased with her performance and in a sweeping flamboyant gesture, he promised to give her anything she asked for. He took an oath on it. A grand oath which reflects his pretensions. The other gospel accounts show that his oath echoes the words of the great Persian emperor Ahasuerus to Queen Esther. Your request will be given to you even to half my kingdom. But that was Ahasuerus, the emperor who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And this was Herod, ruler of a little bit. An absurd, grandiose, delusional promise. The attempt to make himself look more powerful, more important, more in control. So the young girl rushes to her mother and says, what should I ask for? And Herodias has her moment. Now she can force Herod's hand. She knows what kind of man she marries and so she knows how to force his hand. Go and ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, right here, right now. Don't give him a chance to back off, to delay it, to find a way of getting out of it. Here on a platter, the head of the man who's dared to call me to account. And Herod, perhaps not as petulant as that, at that moment as King Ahab had been on his bed with his face to the wall, but just as weak. It's not what he wanted. He was sorry. Perhaps he was still worried about the crowds. But what could he do? They'd all heard he made the promise and he'd done it with an oath. He couldn't back off now. He was more concerned about appearing weak to others than actually being weak. More concerned about the image he'd tried to craft for himself than the truth John had spoken to him time and again. And so he commanded it to be done. And John's head was brought in on a platter and handed to the girl and she handed it to her mother, a grisly terrifying present. I'm not quite sure how the young girl handled that moment when the head was given to her and she had to take it to her mother but it was done and the last of the long line of prophets was dead at the hands of a weak and evil pretender and in a poignant little footnote John's disciples took the corpse and buried it. You see the message of the kingdom of heaven The gospel of God's king who has come to establish forever God's rule not only confronts, it personally confronts those with power. 
it's not just an abstract theoretical debate about religious niceties. It says you are not the ultimate authority, not in the universe, but not even here in this little patch, this little bit you think you control. And whether you are Pharaoh in Egypt, Ahab and Jezebel in Israel, the princes and magicians of Babylon in the days of Daniel, Herod and his brother's wife in Galilee, when God's word confronts those in power, you cannot expect peace. And you can draw that line to today, can't you? But John had to speak because the rule of God extends even those who think they have the power. Political, intellectual, financial or relational. Don't be surprised. Don't be fooled into thinking, I can be smarter than this. I can be more astute than John. I can make them see I'm a reasonable person, someone worth giving a hearing to. John knew that to remain silent wasn't an option when the word of the living God has entered into the world. But friends, the conflict will be deeply personal. And those most threatened will do anything to silence that word. This is not a nice armchair debate about abstract possibilities. This is the rule of God we're talking about. But while that conflict is, uh, is deeply personal to those who think they are powerful, it has a definite purpose for the one with real power. For you see, this gruesome episode was in reality just the curtain raiser. It anticipates what is yet to come in this gospel, just as it echoes what had happened time and again in Israel's history. The classic confrontation between the king and the prophet would, before Matthew has finished his account, escalate into a confrontation between an alliance of those in power from the Jews and the nations and the son God has sent into the world. Again, there would be a word that challenged their hold on power, their illusion that they could rule without restraint, without accountability in their own little bit. There is a judgment to come, Jesus would make clear when he finally entered Jerusalem. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and the reckoning will have come. And he will say both, come you who are blessed by my Father and depart from me you cursed ones. And as in the case of Ahab centuries before and Herod in this incident in Matthew 14, the weakness, insecurity and fear of those who opposed Jesus in Jerusalem would show itself in cruelty and brutality. I wonder whether you've noticed the similarity between Herod and the chief priests and Pharisees. Herod, here in Matthew 14, wanted to kill John, but he feared the crowd because they had him as a prophet. After Jesus told the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21, the chief priests and the Pharisees, perceiving he had told this parable against them, sought to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they had him as a prophet. The same words. And the same pattern of weakness on display as those put on the spot made their gruesome decision in order to pander to others. Herod desperately trying to save face before those he'd gathered to celebrate his birthday. Pilate seeking to placate the Jews to quell the crowd 
handed Jesus over to be crucified, though he knew he was innocent. The death of John the Baptist, like the life and ministry of John the Baptist, was inseparably linked to the death of Jesus. The attempt to silence God's prophet would, in just a few months, escalate into an attempt to do away with the Son of God. For the rejection of the prophets culminates in the rejection of the Son. The gruesome dispatching of John the Baptist signalled an escalation that could only end at the cross. Because the ultimate purpose of that confrontation was not, in fact, the silence of the messenger but the sacrifice of the Saviour. Everything was heading to that point. And the death of John the Baptist was in that way a sign of very great significance. The refusal to acknowledge the coming kingdom and the rule of the king was personal and it would catch up the followers of the king as well as the king himself. But it was also purposeful in that wonderfully, through that very opposition, violent and gruesome though it was, salvation was secured for all who follow the king, who do welcome God's rule, the kingdom of heaven. Undoubtedly, uh, there were multiple reasons why Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself when he heard that this had happened. But amongst them was the realisation of what lies ahead. If they do this to the messenger then what will they do to the one who is himself the message? It's all going to accelerate now. But as we'll see as the rest of the gospel unfolds, Jesus does not walk away from it. The, the withdrawal to a quiet place was just for a moment. Because he is, after all, the one who will save his people from their sins. Will you pray with me? Father... We do thank you for giving us your word and we pray that you might help us to live in the light of it to your glory for Jesus' sake.